If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Whether you're making a delicious family meal or a post-workout snack, choose the farm-fresh taste of Eggland's Best Eggs. Only Eggland's best hens are fed their proprietary all-vegetarian feed. That's what makes their eggs more nutritious. With 10 times more vitamin E, 25% less saturated fat, and 6 times more vitamin D compared to ordinary eggs. Eggland's Best. Better taste, better nutrition, better eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Dave Musgrove and this is the History Extra podcast for the week of 29 March 2012. If you like what you're listening to, you'll like our print sister, BBC History Magazine, which is, of course, Britain's best-selling history magazine. It's on sale in all good news agents and on subscription, and now digitally. It's available on the Kindle. Go to historyextra.com forward slash Kindle, or search for us on Amazon, and on iPad. Go to historyextra.com slash iPad, or find us on the Apple Newsstand. We can also be located on facebook.com slash historyextra, and twitter.com slash historyextra. And our April issue is on sale now in print in the UK and digitally more widely. It's got features on Roman Britain, Roman nightlife, the Falklands War, Richard II, Bletchley Park in the Second World War, and a big special supplement on the Titanic, which sank 100 years ago this month. So lots of good reading. But enough of that. Coming up on this week's podcast, we have... And within three years, the clan is crushed, broken like a dry twig, by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. That was Tim Weiner talking about the FBI's role in secret intelligence. We sort of fall over ourselves trying to show that there was nothing predetermined about, you know, the economic success of Britain. That was James Robinson talking about global poverty and prosperity. Mm-hmm. 
Tim Weiner is an American Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who received acclaim for his recent history of the CIA. His new book, Enemies, tells the story of the FBI, the US Crime Fighting Association that was established back in 1908. BBC History Magazine's Rob Attar spoke to him recently about the FBI's role in secret intelligence and its willingness to get its hands dirty when required. I think a lot of people in Britain would think of the FBI as predominantly a crime-fighting organisation. But in your book, you decided to look at it from a secret intelligence point of view. Why have you taken this approach? Well, because in fact, the FBI is today, and has been throughout much of its 103-year history, first and foremost, a secret intelligence service uh, working in the name of counterterrorism, uh, gathering in secret intelligence for the president. We know our FBI, we Americans do, primarily through movies and television, and um, uh, that is a fictional FBI that is a child's version of history. So um, was the reason that the FBI was established in the first place, was that for crime or was that even then for the intelligence purposes? The FBI was created by President Theodore Roosevelt, who was a great progressive of his day and who had come to office at the age of 42 because his predecessor, William McKinley, had been assassinated by an anarchist in 1901. Anarchists had been assassinating kings and queens and dukes and earls and princes all over Europe for several decades before that. But they had never assassinated the president of the United States. And Roosevelt saw quite brilliantly, I think, in a way, that as he projected power across the world, this is the guy who sent the United States Navy on a world tour for the first time. This is the man who carved the Panama Canal without asking the Panamanians. Um, And this was also a man, as Mark Twain said, and I quote, who was willing to kick the Constitution into the gutter if it interfered with his power. He wanted a force that could, among other things, stop anarchy. And thus, behind the back of Congress, and with the aid of his Attorney General, Charles Bonaparte, who was, yes, a grandnephew of the Emperor, um, they created the FBI 103 years ago. But it wasn't really until the United States was actually attacked during and after World War I that this force came into effect at the time that J. Edgar Hoover joined the Justice Department. Um, J. Edgar Hoover is obviously an absolutely pivotal figure in this story. Is it possible to talk about the history of the FBI as the history of J. Edgar Hoover, really? He served as its director for 48 years, from 1924 until he died in 1972. There is nobody in the history of the United States like him. He stands at the center of the American century like a statue encased in grime. He's encrusted with myth and legend. And one of the great strokes of fortune I had in writing this book was getting my hands on Hoover's secret intelligence files, hundreds of pages of which are overwritten in his own hand in blue ink from a fountain pen, typewritten reports on which he would write his thoughts. And it's like looking over his shoulder and listening to him think out loud. This was a man who created the FBI as we know it. He's the man who created the modern surveillance state. 
And quite literally, every fingerprint that's on file in the United States and around the world, and every bit of biometric data, like a fingerprint, that has been collected in recent years, and every surveillance camera that looks down on us over our shoulders here in London or New York or Washington, in effect owes its existence to him. So what kind of people were the FBI targeting then in their intelligence work? What decades are we talking about? Um, well, I suppose um, at first, I'd say in sort of the early Hoover period, who do they start off with, really? Anarchists and communists. The Communist Party of the United States was founded in September 1920. Hoover's men from the Justice Department and the Bureau were there, present at the creation, five of them including a Russian-speaking undercover agent like who, was, who attended the birth of the CPUSA. Hoover believed, and he believed all his life, that Soviet communism was like the Spanish influenza, that it would float across the world and threaten the United States on an existential level. And he became essentially the, the progenitor of American anti-communism from 1920 onward. So d this mean that the FBI was, was quite a political organization in the sense it was going after political targets? It was doing secret intelligence work in the name of the president. This doesn't get organized on a presidential level until 1936, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt, who we think of as a great civil libertarian and certainly, you know, the defender of democracy, who with Churchill and Stalin defeated Hitler, in 1936, President Roosevelt calls J. Edgar Hoover into the Oval Office of the White House, and he says, Edgar, I want you to develop a very clear picture of the activities of communists and fascists in this country. And the president, President Roosevelt, gave Hoover the power to use the techniques of espionage and intelligence gathering, wiretapping, bugging, planting secret microphones, breaking and entering into people's houses and stealing their personal effects in the name of this intelligence gathering. And Hoover used that presidential edict and it was left undisturbed and unquestioned for the next 26 years. And did the presidents always work quite closely with the FBI or uh, I think I saw something in your book about how the FBI would sometimes investigate the presidents themselves? Well, indeed, they did. Um, each president is a new story in this book. President Roosevelt loved J. Edgar Hoover. Couldn't get enough of him or of his secret intelligence. President Truman feared J. Edgar Hoover and his power and thought he had created, and I quote, an American Gestapo, close quote. Well, Hoover didn't like that at all. And he fought Truman hammer and tong as the threat of Soviet espionage became very real. The Soviets had, in fact, penetrated the American government at high levels. The Pentagon, the State Department, the CIA, and in one case, the FBI itself. President Kennedy hated and feared J. Edgar Hoover, and he and his brother Robert, the 35-year-old Attorney General of the United States, fought bitterly, bitterly every day with J. Edgar Hoover until the day the president was shot. President Johnson loved J. Edgar Hoover 
And there are tapes, thank God, that have been preserved in the Lyndon B. Johnson Presidential Library, just as there are tapes preserved from the Nixon administration, of President Johnson and Hoover talking on the phone day in and day out. And they are fascinating. They are quoted at length in this book, and they make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. What kind of things were they talking about then? There is a passage in 1964, during the summer of 1964. President Johnson was a southerner, a Texan. President Kennedy had been murdered in Texas. President Johnson wanted very much to be elected president of the United States in his own right. To do this, he thinks, he's going to have to win passage of the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act of 1964. He is going to have to win the South. In order to do this, he orders J. Edgar Hoover to destroy the Ku Klux Klan. Let us remember that the Klan, those folks in the white hoods and the white sheets, was the most violent and murderous terrorist organization in 20th century America. They murdered uncounted hundreds and thousands of people in the South over the course of the years. They blew up churches. They blew up synagogues. They burned down people's homes. They shot people in the back. And they controlled through fear and force state police, local police, throughout the South. President Johnson says to J. Edgar Hoover on the phone, on tape, I want you to collect the same kind of intelligence on the Klan that you got on the communists. Well, J. Edgar Hoover doesn't want to do that. He thinks the problem in the South is, as he put it, the, in, the integrationists, not the segregationists. But his president has ordered him to do this, and he does it. He uses the same techniques on the Ku Klux Klan as he used on the communists because his president has commanded it. Espionage, sabotage, dirty tricks, poison pen letters. And within three years, the Klan is crushed, broken like a dry twig by J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. Do you, do you think the FBI was quite effective at this intelligence work then? D did they do a good job when they were given an assignment? Well, if you don't have to play by the rules of law, you can rather win most of the time. Um, that's not cricket, but it is um, espionage. Yes, if you can use bugging, wiretapping, sabotage, uh, espionage, breaking and entering, yes, you will succeed, but you will sacrifice civil liberties in the name of national security. And this is the balance we've been trying to strike now ever since J. Edgar Hoover died. And I rather think in the last three years we're getting it right for the first time, which is an extraordinary thing. Was the FBI ever called into account for some of the methods that it was using? It was indeed. As soon as Hoover died. <laughs> um... You know, his number two and number three men were convicted in a federal court of conspiring to violate the civil rights of Americans by breaking into their homes and stealing their personal effects. They were pardoned and set free by order of President Ronald Reagan shortly after Reagan took office. So yes, there was a great calling into account and we have been fighting for the last 40 years to strike this balance crucial, essential balance in any democracy between security and liberty. We are commanded by our Constitution that we are to be both safe and free. 
But these are opposing forces. And so we fight this tug of war. And I would say throughout the Cold War and for much of the time that followed, certainly after 9-11, that national security has trumped civil liberty. But today, and for the last three years, we have had an FBI director who understands the vitality of civil liberty. That is Robert Mueller. He is a former Marine. He has been running the FBI since he took office on God help him for September 2001. We also have a president who understands the Constitution of the United States and was a lecturer in constitutional law. And between the two of them, they have tried every day for the last three years to get this right. And I think that they have succeeded beyond hope and expectation. Now, in, in your last book, you wrote about the CIA. And, and obviously, the intelligence work the FBI does in some ways overlaps with the CV, CIA. Sorry, How did these two organizations work together over the past century? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> The CIA was formed in 1947, and J. Edgar Hoover was furious. He detested the CIA. And for decades thereafter, they were chalk and cheese. And they worked at counter-purposes. Um, they fought, they backstabbed, um, uh, they did not cooperate. And it is a terrible thing to say, but... Their failure to communicate, their failure to share intelligence, their failure to keep calm and carry on and get along was one of the many proximate causes of the success of the 9-11 attacks. And we should have known because the same thing had happened at Pearl Harbor. There were fragments of intelligence scattered throughout the Army and the Navy and the FBI that the Japanese would certainly attack heading toward America by air and by sea. But precisely when and where didn't quite have that. Had these agencies cooperated, who knows? It's one of the world's great counterfactuals. Um, the same thing essentially happened in the weeks and months before 9-11. And these are some of the saddest passages of the book where you see it coming and you know Al-Qaeda is going to attack. They have said they are going to attack. But precisely where and when, we don't know because we're not putting the pieces of the puzzle together. So many of them were within the grasp of the CIA and the FBI. So was it just rivalry between the two sides that meant they didn't cooperate properly? Essentially, it was folly. And I would cite to you the great book by the American historian Barbara Tuckman called The March of Folly. Why did the Trojans take in that horse? They knew what was in that horse. Why did the Renaissance popes act in such a stupid and corrupt way as to bring on the Protestant Reformation? Why did the British lose the American colonies and why were we in Vietnam? And the answer is folly, which is acting against your own existential best interests and doing it knowingly. The failure to cooperate, the petty rivalry, the squabbling, when people's lives were at stake, now that was folly. Um, and do you think America's been better off for the FBI? Well, I think that modern intelligence services are rather like, you know, uh, income tax in the post office. 
It's not a question of whether you're going to have them or not. You're going to have them. They are tools of the state. I mean, look, look, the British have been at this since the time of Queen Elizabeth I. The Russians since Peter the Great. And the Chinese since Sun Tzu wrote The Art of War 26 centuries ago. We, by, by comparison, are beginners. But you cannot project power across the world without intelligence. People are going to die if you don't have intelligence. Your army will be killed. Your soldiers will be massacred. Intelligence is a weapon of war, and if used wisely, it enables you to fight war without weapons. When intelligence succeeds, you can prevent war. When intelligence fails, people die, soldiers and civilians. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. That was Tim Weiner. His book, Enemies, A History of the FBI, has recently been published in the UK by Alan Lane. Now we have a short advert. What links the weddings of kings and queens, the funeral of a hero, and the music of great composers? What was once London's grandest street, but has never contained a single cobble? What's been a stage for royal pageantry and pleasure for hundreds of years? The answer, the Thames, Britain's Royal River. Book your ticket for Royal River, Power, Pageantry and the Thames, sponsored by Barclays. A unique exhibition in celebration of Her Majesty the Queen's Diamond Jubilee and guest curated by me, David Starkey, at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich from the 27th of April. 
Book now. Search online for Royal River. What is it that makes some countries rich and other countries poor? That's the question that economists James Robinson and Darren Asimoglu seek to answer in their new book, Why Nations Fail. Taking the story back to the Roman Empire, they argue that success actually has very little to do with climate, culture or geography. Rob Attar caught up with James Robinson on his recent trip to Britain to discover what he thinks are the real causes of global prosperity. We very clearly live in a very unequal world at the moment. Um, Why, in your view, have countries such as Britain and America become relatively prosperous when others in sub-Saharan Africa, places like that, haven't? Well, I I think that, I mean, what the book's about really is is, uh, it's because of the way countries that become economically successful like Britain historically or the United States uh, they become like that because of how the societies become organized so we we use this terminology institutions we, we talk about how institutions are important for society but the institution sounds very abstract what we really mean is uh, the tangible kind of rules that govern how the economy works and how what incentives people have. I think it's really about incentives, about people's incentives to kind of to innovate, to get educated, to start a firm, to, you know, take on different occupations. Really what makes a society prosperous is whether or not it's organized to to kind of harness the talents of its of its people, the talents and energies and ideas, the creativity of its people. And and those societies historically became organized in such a way as to harness those talents and that's what really makes those societies economically successful and innovative and that's very different in much of the world in sub-saharan africa or latin america or the middle east so was there anything particular about countries like say britain that meant they they developed these institutions that were required for economic success was it something about its geography or its culture maybe I think the answer to that is no. Actually, we sort of fall over ourselves trying to show that there was nothing predetermined about, you know, the economic success of Britain. It's really just a set of sort of historical accidents that led onto this particular institutional path. For example, you know, one of the things we try to look at, you know, if you look at, for example, the Roman Empire or, you know, so people kind of argue that, well, it's, you know, the, Europe developed successfully because of this unique legacy of the Roman Empire of kind of law, the Roman laws and, you know, whatever it was or some sort of vague inheritance. But actually, it's very interesting if you look at the end of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire and the legacy of the Roman Empire collapsed collapsed most completely <laughs> in Britain, you know, and there's, yeah. you know, in fact, there was a huge sort of economic and institutional regress in Britain at the end of the Roman Empire, whereas, you know, where did the Roman Empire's legacy linger more successfully? Turkey or, you know, the, the Byzantine Empire, Eastern Europe. So, so you know, I think, I think, and Britain, you know, right the way up until, um, you know, the time of the Spanish Armada, for example, Britain was not a big player. It was a it was a peripheral kind of small, un, you know, not a powerful place. Uh, and, you know, that's even with British colonialism. You know, British Britain got into the game very late in the day. You know, that's part of the reason why they ended up colonizing these marginal, uninteresting places like the United States and Australia. Uh, it turned out <laughs> they were places, uh, you know, where the conditions were such as to create actually very functional uh, societies. But Britain didn't colonize those places because they wanted to. It was because that was the only thing left. So what, what were the key moments for somewhere like Britain where, that put Britain on the right path? What, 
what kind of moments took Britain away from being a small player and set it in the direction to become the world's leading power? Yeah, I think that was a, you know, the way we tried to tell that story was it was a, you know, it was quite a long historical process. Uh, you know, there are some sort of very important, you know, what we call critical junctures in the book where you see some sort of institutional divergence in Britain. One, one, you know, would be in the 14th century, the Black Death that we discussed, that the Black Death is a sort of creates a very interesting divergence between Western and Eastern European, Western and Eastern Europe in terms of the institutional institutions you see in Western Europe at the, after the Black Death feudal institutions uh, which were an enormous impediment to having a sort of functional economy start to crumble in uh, Western Europe. In Britain there's a very interesting kind of conflict which takes place at the end of the Black Death over how the labour market is going to be organised and what rights people have over their labour and do they, you know, it's a very interesting conflict that's sort of won in some sense by by people who want to have more freedom of contract, more freedom of the labour market, you know, so feudal regulations start start falling. That happens throughout, not just in Britain, but throughout a lot of Western Europe. But then Brit- in Britain, you know, that, so that's also true. And then there's also this long struggle with the monarchy, which takes place from the sort of late Tudor period onwards into the 17th century. Uh, the book, uh, what we pay a lot of attention to is this so-called Glorious Revolution in 1688, where, which is this conflict between Parliament and the monarchy, which leads to a completely different type of political system. So I guess if you could say there's one really important instant it would be 1688 and the institutions that emerge out of 1688 but we also try to sort of tell a story about you know how come that happened in britain and not elsewhere although you know you see very similar moments you know in france or in other place i don't think it was and it wasn't you know historically determined that 1688 you know could easily have gone the other way in fact you know james ii uh you know james ii could easily have won 1688 you know he was just unlucky he kind of lost his nerve at some point uh, so i guess 1688 is the thing in the book we emphasize a lot but I, but you could see that as a as a as a that's part of a of a sort of historical process of divergence of institutions in in england that goes back uh, earlier but but again i don't think there's anything very british about that it's really just you know it's a cumulative process and there's luck and there's along the way so really, luck plays an absolutely crucial part in this, by the sound of it. The reason why somewhere, I know you talk in the book about Peru, somewhere like Peru is nowhere near as successful as somewhere like the United States. It's a lot down to luck more than anything. Well, contingency, perhaps I should have said. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when I say luck or contingency, you know, we emphasise a lot conflict over institutions and that conflicts are very important in determining uh, what happens over time, and those conflicts go can go in different directions. I think you know if you think about the Americas or the difference between North America and Peru, you could say you could say the same thing. I mean, we talk about the early formation of institutions in the colonial period in Latin America or in North America, and it's true. You know, there's conflicts. You know, there's conflicts, uh, but the circumstances in some sense, shape the most likely outcome of the conflict. So it's true that, you know, in Virginia or the early colonial United States, the conflicts could have gone in different ways. But the, we try to emphasize that the circumstances heavily shaped, you know, in some sense, the likely outcome. That Many outcomes were possible, but the fact that the U.S. ended up with very functional institutions in the colonial period, very different economic institutions in Latin America, 
was heavily shaped by the circumstances. So I guess I would say, you know, in the British case, it's true that the Glorious Revolution, James II could have won the Glorious Revolution and he could have gone along with his project of creating a very different type of state than emerged in Britain after that. But but the, 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 the change in British society up to that made it much less likely he was going to win than otherwise. So, so, so yeah. yes, there's contingency, but it's shaped by, by these sort of structures, I suppose, by the circumstances. So once a country goes on a certain path, it tends to carry on in that direction. And so when a country's going on the wrong path, it might be quite hard for it to get out of that. Yes, I think that's, that's right. Oh, so we sort of emphasise that you know, there are these feedback, we call these vicious circles and virtuous circles, that, that once a particular type of society gets organised, there's an enormous propensity for it, uh, that type of organisation to persist over time. Yeah. And so in the book, you, you make it clear that it's, political institutions are really important to have economic prosperity. Is it, has it ever been possible for a country that didn't have these political institutions to still be economically successful? I think we emphasise that if you want to have sustained economic progress, you need to have a particular kind of nexus of institutions, which we call inclusive institutions that, you know, allow the society to harness its, the talents of its people in the way we, we sort of dis- I was describing earlier. I think for short, shorter periods of time, it's possible to have uh, economic growth under what we call extractive institutions. But what we emphasise is that that just is not sustained. I mean, the canonical example of this that we use in the book would be the Soviet Union. You know, when I was an undergraduate at the LSE, which is not that long ago, uh, we were still being taught, this is the early 1980s, we were still being taught that, you know, that if you really wanted to have successful economic growth, you need to have a Soviet command-style economy. And, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, between 1928, when Stalin, you know, sort of started pushing these five-year plans, the next 40 years... That was probably the uh, most successful experience of economic growth in world history. You know, the Soviet Union grew incredibly fast by taking people, millions of people in the countryside who are basically doing nothing except, you know, growing potatoes and doing subsistence agriculture and sticking them in factories. And, you know, this created enormous improvements in uh, income per capita. And it fooled everybody. It fooled economics professors. It fooled the CIA. It even fooled, you know, the Soviet leadership. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so, but this, well, it wasn't sustainable. The, the, you know, they, they, you know, they couldn't, they could, they could only get so far with that model. And, you know, in some sense now it seems, you know, it seems sort of laughable that people ever thought that the Soviet Union had a kind of model of economic success that was... But, you know, lots of that heavily influenced people in the third world. You know, it heavily influenced people all over the place. They, many African countries, when they became independent in the 1960s, had as their model, yes, we, we need to do it like the Soviets. This is the way to develop the economy. You know, if you look at uh, Ghana, for example, Kwame Nkrumah, the first government in Ghana, they were heavily influenced by... This, this model of economic development. So I guess one of the emphasis in the book is, you know, this is a case where it's very, you know, especially the Chinese example, you know, we make an analogy to how people think about China, uh, you know, uh, it's very similar the way you go back 30 years and the discussion now of China exactly mirror, you know, mirrors the discussion of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, and, and, and so, so we just think that's very kind of ahistorical. That's why it's so important to think about in a historical way about these growth experiences and what leads to sustained economic growth and 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 you know what leads to bursts of economic growth which are not sustained i mean there's many examples of that argentina and uh, so, so 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 yes it's possible to have economic growth 
without this sort of full nexus of inclusive institutions, but it's not uh, sustainable. So it won't last in the long run then. You have, to, you have to, I think, is it involving the people? That's the most important aspect of it. You talk about pluralism uh-huh. in the book. You need, you need to have lots of people involved in the political institutions and yes. people feeling like they have a chance of having their own benefit from the economy as well. Yeah, I think, I mean, because we, you know, we emphasise a lot that if you want to have a functional economy, then, you know, you need to have uh, economic rights have to be very broadly distributed in society. You know, I mean, one of the great sort of stylized facts about world economic history in the last 200, 250 years is that, the, you know, if you go back and look at, for example, the incidents of sort of labor coercion or slavery or serfdom or all sorts of things like that, Societies that were based on labor coercion are the ones that have done worst, you know, in the last 200 years, 250 years of, of, of world economic history. That, you know, re- restricting people's opportunities, their chances, their mobility, you know, that, that's what kills kind of innovation and economic dynamism. But ultimately, you know, what is it that gives people, you know, secure property rights to their assets or, you know, equality of access to the law or, you know, or supports enforcement of contracts or their rights? You know, we see what is it that supports an economy like that? It's really political power and political influence that, you know, it's, if it's political rights have to be, political power has to be equally distributed to sustain such a society. And, you know, it, and it's when political rights are, are not, you know, not equally distributed that that you know that you get you get this other type of society. I mean, you know, the, one of the great examples, uh, you know, of this would be sort of apartheid South Africa. You know, apartheid South Africa is a sort of fantastic example of what we call an extractive society, where economic institutions were clearly designed to redistribute income from 80% of the people, the black people, to 20% of the people, the white people. You know, the labor market institutions, access to land, education, everything was designed to keep black wages and incomes low and to redistribute the money to uh, the income to, to white people. How was that system how is it that system possible? Well, because black people didn't have any political power. They didn't have any right to determine economic institutions, labor market institutions, where they could live, what they could do, what they could own. They were just completely disenfranchised. White people had the power and they used it to organize a society for their benefit. And of course, after 1994, when that system collapsed in South Africa, those institutions are just not sustainable. Once black people have political rights, you can't sustain all these economic institutions discriminating against them. So, So that's a very sort of canonical example, I think, of how these things interrelate, kind of political power political institutions and how they generate economic institutions. So so basically your I suppose your conclusion would be that a country like China that at the moment even though it's experiencing breakneck growth will have to slow down at some point and probably may not be the big superpower that everyone thinks it's going to be. Yeah, I think you know the big picture is that you know China is a you know China is still a pretty poor country. You know China's income per capita is about one seventh of the US level. It's grown very rapidly, but China was very poor with a very 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 inefficiently organized economy in the 1970s. And you know what the Chinese have done I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, this, the misconceptions about China, you know, like people even last night, you know, we were talking about this and, you know, that, that uh, people think that it's, it's the Chinese Communist Party that's responsible. It's, this has happened, you know, in spite of the Chinese Communist Party, not because of the Chinese Communist Party, that the economic growth in China has been caused by the Chinese Communi- Communist Party kind of withdrawing from controlling every aspect of economic life. You know, that the first thing they did in 1978 was they introduced incentives into agriculture. They sort of allowed people to, you know, 
start doing what they want and keep the income they got from doing what they want. And that led to enormous increase in productivity in agriculture. So, you know, and the same thing started happening with industry. They started re- relaxing controls. And, and so, so, you know, this is, you know, this is not a triumph of the Communist Party. This is, the, this is the Communist Party kind of pulling itself out of society a little bit, you know. So, so uh, but of course, the main thing the Communist Party wants to do is to, yes, they've done that. And that's created all these economic benefits. Uh, which are undeniable, but they still want to control political power completely. And those two things just don't work. You can't have an inclusive economy in a sustained way when political power is so concentrated and unconstrained because it's not sustainable for many reasons. For one, it's, gonna, it's not going to be possible to stop the power being used to predate on the economy. I mean, this is like the Tunisian story. And if you read about the Ben Ali regime in Tunisia, Ben Ali sort of starts off like that. You know, it's a dictatorship. Political power is very concentrated. But, but there's many inclusive aspects of the economy. And the economy does very well for quite a long time. But it's not sustainable. Why is that? Because Ben Ali and his family and, and his cronies can't resist using the political power to enrich themselves. So they gradually predate more and more on the economy, 10% of this, 20% of that, 25% of something else. And, and that starts throwing the economic benefits into, into, into reverse. So, you know, that is quite likely to happen uh, in China. I think what's more likely to happen in China is what almost happened after Tiananmen Square in 1989, which is, you know, is that all of this economic freedom starts challenging the political status quo. And that's the one thing that the Communist Party really want to maintain. So I would think a more likely scenario is that that they will start clamping down on all of this economic freedom because it becomes too threatening to their political power. But I guess the main sort of prediction of the book is that what's very likely to happen in China is that economic growth will start, will, you know, will, will disappear and the place will you know, become much richer than it was in the 1970s, but still very, well, still relatively poor compared to Britain or Western Europe or North American countries. So just, just one last question. What would you say is a solution for a country that's mired in poverty, say somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa? What should a government following your principles do to try and get the country out of those problems? Oh, well, that's a, <laughs> that's quite a big question. That, that's a complicated question. I mean, I, you know, people often, ask, often say to me, oh, isn't this a desperately pessimistic view of the world? And I, I counter that by saying, no, actually, it's much more optimistic than, you know, other parts of the world, uh, uh, you know, other types of explanation. I, you know, I've been working a lot the last five years uh, in, in Sierra Leone in West Africa. And, you know, compared to some sort of view that says, you know, Sierra Leone is poor because it's geography, you know, it's hot or there's malaria or something, or there's some sort of culture, you know, the Africans believe in witchcraft or, you know, or there's some cultural impediment to sort of developing a successful uh, uh, modern economy. I think that's all rubbish. I think there's no reason why Sierra Leone couldn't be a prosperous, successful place. You know, if they just the government invested in infrastructure and education and people you know people had rights to kind of do what they w- do what they want with their with their talent so I, I you know I, so i sort of think it's at some level it's a very optimistic view the difficulty is that the current sort of institutional equilibrium in a country like sierra leone is very difficult to change you know it, 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 it to change the development trajectory of a country like that you have to change its institutions and that means fundamentally kind of reconfiguring the distribution of political power in society and the way the state works. And that's not something which is easy to achieve. It's not 
something that you, you can't solve that problem just by throwing money at it. You know, throwing money, development aid may be helpful. You know, you know people get medicines that otherwise they wouldn't have. They can eat. You know, they get a school that wouldn't exist. I mean, you know, so I, I'm not advocating getting rid of aid. I'm just emphasizing that aid as currently configured doesn't address the institutional uh, problems of that society. You know, I don't have, and I don't think any economist has a magic wand or a sort of simple fix for that. You know, that's really a matter, you know, because to understand, you know, what you can do and what's feasible and how you can do it and what's ethical, you know, indeed what's ethical to do, you know, is very complicated. It depends a lot on the society itself. I mean, we, we at the end of the book, we try to use this, we talk about the example of Brazil and how Brazil change its institutional path in the late 1970s and early 1980s and we talk about this this notion of kind of empowerment that in some sense what's needed is is uh, you know if you go back to the, the South Africa example, you know, South Africa has been doing a lot better since 1994 because, you know, because the political change in the political transition that happened with the collapse of the apartheid regime, you know, empowered uh, all of these Africans that had previously been disempowered. And, and you know, so I, I think that empowerment, this notion of empowerment as, as a way of, yeah, that's, that's, an, that's a concept which sort of comes out of the, the battle for, wi- for women's rights, I think, this notion of empowerment and, and you know, and, and I, you know, you, that's an interesting example because you see, you know, in Britain, for example, that this, this struggle for women's rights and equality for women, you know, that did empower people and it did lead to big uh, change in society, I think beneficial change in society. So I guess that's an interesting analogy for us that, that, that you know, you need to empower people who are disempowered. You know, how, you know, how do we do that as outsiders? You know, that's a complicated thing. You know, what's ethical, what's not ethical. But, you know, if you think about the recent history in Iraq and Afghanistan, you see how complicated it is to come from outside and just, you know, think you can rebuild institutions in a way to create a new society that's obviously fraught with uh, complexity. Uh, and, and, you know, I, you know, I think what we try to do at the end is just to sort of say you know i mean i you know if you want to solve the problem of poverty that you know the first thing you want to do is think about it in the right way you know you need to you know because otherwise you won't get anywhere so 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 i guess that's the end of the book we try to sort of say well you know here's the right way to think about it you know we give some examples brazil other places where you know these processes have taken place i think how you know outsiders can facilitate that process or help it along you know that's something you know which which one has to think about in any particular country and and think about the circumstances and the constraints and the forces and you know also you know what is ethical that was james robinson david florence professor of government at harvard university why nations fail is out now published by profile that's your lot for this week. Next time round, we'll be considering the Falklands War, 30 years on from its commencement in 1982, with Max Hastings, who was there. In the meantime, don't forget the April issue of BBC History magazine is on sale now. If you can't get the print version, you can download digital versions for both Kindle and iPad. Check out our site, historyextra.com, for more information on that. This weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Dave Gibson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>